Welcome to Real Leadership, the podcast that cuts through the noise to focus on leaders who make, move, and process things in the real economy. Together, we'll discover the strategies and hard-earned lessons from pragmatic, gutsy leaders who operate in a world that is more stake than it is sizzle. Right here, we dive into their stories, challenges, and triumphs to go beneath the surface to the very heart of leadership in the real economy. I'm your host, Jim Weaver, Chief Operating Officer of the Oni Group, where we believe that real leadership does indeed matter. Let's go. Accomplishing diversity, equality, and inclusion directives can be challenging. Excelsior Staffing, a certified MBE providing staffing solutions for light industrial sectors, has been helping companies like yours find success since 2007. Strengthen your diverse team with Excelsior. ExcelsiorStaffing.com Today I'm here with Michael Thomas a respected leader in both the education and business communities. Michael is a Mississippi native who attended Jackson State University, where he received a bachelor's degree in accounting. Upon graduation, Michael served in the Mississippi State Auditor's Office before becoming deputy superintendent of the Jackson Public Schools. Michael then returned to his alma mater and became JSU's vice president for business and finance. In 2015, the Systems Group offered Michael an opportunity he couldn't refuse. Since then, he served as the president of the conglomerate of companies that include System Automotive Interiors, Systems Electrocoding, Systems Consultant Associates, and Systems Information Technology. These companies have an impressive portfolio of clients and hold the distinction of being a minority-owned and woman-owned business. Welcome, Michael. Good to be here, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. You have a you have an interesting track record. You're you're a bit of a bit of a unicorn with 25, 30 years in the public sector, and then making a left turn and going into private business, huh? Yeah, it's a it's one of my most interesting stories. Uh, t- I tell people about the the jobs that I've had and how much I love them, and and how I got from one to the next. Um, I read when you became the VP of Business and Finance at JSU, you walked into a $1.2 million deficit in the reserves fund. And when you left five years later, you had $15 million yeah. in the reserves fund. Yeah. That's impressive. Tell us about that. All right. So, so the details are kind of interesting. So I had spent uh, most of my career in K-12. And... Mm-hmm probably transitioning from K-12 to university was almost like transitioning from education to manufacturing. Uh, I had a a bachelor's degree, uh, but I had some really good experience. And, you know, normally when you go to the university as vice president, you know, they like to see that doctorate, you know, Mm -hmm. by your name. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I was, uh, I had you know, kind of run my course in, in K-12. I, you know, I tell people I ran into a boss that I decided I couldn't work for. And I have really good uh-huh. leadership advice for people when they run into a boss that they have a hard time working for. If he doesn't look like he's leaving, you might need to leave. So I decided, <laughs> to, I decided to retire in 2010, and I wasn't going to work anymore. 
And oh wow! Oh, I, I was done. I was satisfied. I had a pretty decent retirement coming in, so I was done. Forty-seven years old, I was I was retired. So what happened was I was sitting at home retired, bored to death because all my friends were yeah. at work. And uh, uh-huh. while I was sitting at home, I got a call from a guy that was interim president at Jackson State University, and he said, "Hey, Michael, I, I need a." I need someone to work uh, in this position as vice president of business and finance. And, uh, you know, you, you know, I know you're sitting at home. You're not doing anything. So <laughs> are you interested? Uh, so, I, you know, so I launched into this thing saying, well, how much does it pay? He, mm-hmm. So this is what he told me. He said, well, Mike, I could haggle with you over salary. He said, but I know my wife is a good friend of yours, and she told me that this is your dream job, that you wanted to go back to your alma, alma mater and fix everything broken. And uh, yeah. he said, so I, I know I don't have to haggle with you. <laughs> so he said, <laughs> he said, it pays X, and I know you're going to come and work for me. So it was literally, wow. he called me on June 30th, and he told me you need to report the first working day of July. And uh, so I was ready to go. It was supposed yeah. to be a six-month job. It turned into a five-year job. But when I got there, university had a $1.2 million deficit. So I tell people, everybody who want to figure that out, start at zero and then start subtracting a million point two dollars. That's where we started. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But I, uh, you know, when I worked for the audit department, I really gained a lot of experience years ago. My first job out of Jackson State University, I gained a lot of experience in fixing problem financial systems. So literally, I left the audit department, you know, six years, spent a lot of that time, you know, with struggling school districts, hired by a struggling school district that had a half a million dollar deficit. And over Mm -hmm. the next two and a half years, I built that. And it was a small budget, six million dollars. But I built that half a million dollar deficit into a $240,000 surplus. I built it to $240,000, and our goal was to build it to a half a million dollar surplus. Mm -hmm. Start off with a half a million dollar deficit, you know, build it to a half a million dollar surplus. Anyway, while I was building toward that half a million dollar surplus, I I received a call from someone at Jackson Public Schools saying, hey, at the time, they were the largest school district in the state of Mississippi. Hey, we need a budget director. We never had one. Um, mm-hmm. And you've been recommended to apply for that position, which I applied for. And I got that position. And uh, that was in 1994. I was hired by JPS. At the time, they, they had a $24 million surplus, but they were eating into that surplus to the tune of $6 million a year. And so, you know, you know, if you do the math, they got four years of of overspending before they don't have a surplus anymore. So basically, I became budget director. And for the next 16 years, I kept them financially sound, never had a financial crisis um, and and just gained a lot of experience because uh, I went from budget director uh, in 94 to CFO in 98 to deputy superintendent, Mm. actually, in 2002. Mm. And when I became deputy superintendent, I was I was over eight departments: transportation, facilities, human resources, finance, uh, food service, technology, campus police. So I had the gamut of yeah. all the operational areas that were uh, not instruction but supported instruction. 
And so it just Got gave it. me a lot of experience in managing finances and you know, uh, creative financing, all kinds of things. So when I got to the university, I have this strategy that I employ everywhere I go. And my mentor calls it my proof of concept. Uh, you know, that, that I, you know, I thought I was really good at what I did because I was in JPS, but I thought it was because I was there so long. So, you know, you stay in a place so long, you should get better. But sure. He said, he said, you have a good system. And so when I got to mm. Jackson State, I kind of employed that system. And my system is really looking at three things, the three Ps. I look at people, practices, and policies. And, mm. and why they had a $1.2 million deficit. So I started attacking all those things that caused that deficit. And actually, we went from... Uh, a $1.2 million deficit to a $15 million surplus in three years. Three years, $15 million wow. surplus. I think the first year we were somewhere around five year, five million, second year, eight million, third year, 15 million. And, uh, and, and, and for all funds, we built them up to 32 million. And then we started making some investments in the campus, and yeah. by the time we were making these investments in the campus, you know, people start thinking that you're a magician with this stuff, and they, they spend a lot mm -hmm. more money than you want them to spend. So I was getting a little, you know, tired of that, and uh, I, I, I uh, told my mentor, who was actually the guy who started the company that I'm president of, that I was thinking about leaving the university, and, oh, uh, okay. and he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well... I don't know exactly what I want to do, but whatever I do next is just going to be is going to be something you know significant, right? So he said, "Well, talk to my daughter because we've been having some conversations about you." And you know, long story short, um, they made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. They said, "Hey, uh, how about coming coming over and running our manufacturing operations?" At the time, they had two manufacturing operations, systems electrocoding, and systems automotive interiors, both in Mississippi, and they had a, a consultancy. And uh -huh. uh, so I said, mm, okay, sure. So I came over, and uh, since that- Remind me the name of the founder. Bill Cooley. Okay. And so okay. what happened was, what had happened was, as they say, I was, when I was in JPS and I became deputy superintendent, I inherited 50 managers eight direct reports, 42 managers below them, and 2,200 people below them. So I needed, in my opinion, I needed to get really good at what we were doing in the district very fast. Because that's a, there's a whole lot that can go wrong with all those people. Yeah. So certainly. we started doing uh, um, uh, organizational improvement work. Literally, I told every one of those eight direct reports, this is the way we're going to operate. We're going to become business focused in our operational department. That means customer service oriented and also effective and efficient in delivering services. And I said, we should get really, really good to the point where no business could come in and take over our operation. And I said, and oh, yeah. by the way, I'm going to be inviting businesses to come in to look at us as takeover opportunities. And I can't think of the name of the first. It's a well, very prominent name organization, and they actually come in and take over like maintenance and janitorial services. They came in, 
about two or three years after we started doing this improvement work, uh, because remember, it's, it's all designed to have a business focus in a public entity, and and that's that's yeah. that was the strategy. They came in and they made an assessment of our custodial area for all the schools. We had 50, 58 schools and probably about 25 other department locations. Yeah. Anyway, they concluded that they could take over our operation, but they would have to hire, uh, I want to say, 50 custodians. Wow. But they, they commented that they had never seen buildings so clean. I said, well, mm. look, why should I outsource if buildings are clean? And they would still have to spend more money, which the district would have to pay for in order to come in. So what I decided to do instead, when they talked about the need to add more custodians, I said, well, why don't I add equipment that would make the job of the custodians that I have easy, easier? So mm -hmm. we basically started purchasing you remember those floor sweepers where the custodians go back and forth yes. over the floor with yep. the little circular? Yep. yep. Yes. Hey, we start we start buying uh, the equipment that they could ride up and down the hallway on, so they wouldn't have, you uh -huh. know less labor intensive, wouldn't need quite so many custodians because we got equipment in place, and that was the investment that we made. And so we never really had a company that could come in and take over our operation because we got really really efficient and effective in what we what we did and we added a customer service component so all that conversation is said when i started doing that I, I decided at that point look i really need to get my leaders some leadership training and so i actually hired systems consultants associates to come in and do leadership oh, okay. training for my 50 managers and um, and so every year after that I would get them to come in, take these guys on a, a two and a half day retreat, split the managers up 25-25 okay. on it, and and basically let um, system consultant and and particularly Bill Cooley, who at that point was running the systems companies, um, he he and and a group that he was that was a part of his group, they did the leadership training and it was really really good, and so I call him my mentor. But we never really sat down and said, hey, I want you to be my mentor right. or anything like that. Right. But, you know, he just kind of took to me. And, you know, when he had an opportunity, he'd invite me to lunch and we'd talk about different things. And so when I left the school system, proof of concept was what could I carry that same success to the university? I did. And then the question was, OK, Michael, you've done it at the university. That's your proof of concept. Now, take the work that you've done, leadership development, process improvement, um, organization improvement, and, and now make our companies better. And oh, by the way, I want you to grow the company too. Recruiting top talent is tough. Onan Staffing focuses on people, offering exceptional benefits to attract and retain dedicated workers. Partner with us for flexible, data-driven solutions. Visit OnanStaffing.com to learn more. Well, it's interesting. Um, you would think with that big a budget turnaround, you would have to kill a lot of sacred cows, you know, and oh, you yeah. might really tick a lot of people off. Yes. But it sounds like a lot of it, though, was just it's just very positive. Well, I don't well, know. Did you have to do a lot of cow killing? Well, or? yeah. That, now, remember, I look at people, I look at policies yeah. and I look at practices. And I would say mm -hmm. this, that 
organizations are very reluctant to change any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So right off the bat, I did my assessment of people, and I concluded that I had four top managers that I thought were not working in the best interest of the university, were probably contributing to the deficit that it had, and mm-hmm. I couldn't keep going with them. So I made a, I did an assessment in like, I think the first 30 days, I did that assessment of people, processes, and practices. And my first recommendation to the president, the interim president was, I need to, I need to terminate four people. So he was yeah. like, yeah, four people, why? I said, they're not good at their job and they're not good for the university. Um, you know, people kind of run up against the Peter principle sometimes. So I said, sure, uh, sure. you know, he said, well, you know, how do you want to do it? I said, all in one day. I said, you know. Mm-hmm. So he, get this story. So I decided to do this. Now, what I'm told after I did this, nobody had gotten fired like that at the university. And they said ever. People got moved, but they didn't get fired. Yes, so anyway, yes. so I, I did this. And believe it or not, the news media picked up on it. You know, uh they wow. named the people, the person over uh, the person over um, auxiliary enterprises, the food service director, the purchasing director, and then, you know just just went down this list, or yeah. were terminated uh, at JSU yesterday, and blah blah blah. So then I get a call from the commissioner of higher ed. He's like, "What's going on? I, come over, I need you to come over to my office." You know, well the first call, you know, he called the president. And, and uh, the president told me that the commissioner wanted to talk to me. So I, he, he told me, come over to his office. He said, what is going on? I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, you know, the newspaper, you terminated four people at the university. I said, well, when I came on board, you told me I had carte blanche authority to fix every problem at the university. He said, yeah. He said, he said but you, you – the the auxiliary guy over auxiliary enterprise, the food service director, uh. person. He said somebody's stealing money. I said I said look, I probably can't document what they've taken if they've taken anything. All I'm saying is that they are contributing to the problem that's happening at the university with the deficit. I said that's very clear from what I've you know gathered over the last thirty days. And I said so going forward, if I'm going to fix every problem broken. I can't do it with these guys. So this, he said, well, okay, well, next time, just give me a heads up. You know, I'd like to know these kind of things before they hit the papers. I say, okay, no problem. Uh-huh. So yeah, anyway, yeah. That, was, uh, that was a part of the start of, of fixing the problem. And then it was just practices, really small things that become big things. You're losing money in food service. So I got to figure out, well, why are you losing money in, in an auxiliary enterprise that should be generating revenue? Uh, they yeah. had lost a million dollars a year for the five years before I got there. And I, the only thing I did there, I made an assessment of what was going on, and, and I figured out places that they were losing money, you know, giving away meals, inventory coming up missing, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. You, know, mm-hmm. you know, stuff started adding up. And a million dollars worth of that right. stuff. So I outsourced. I outsourced it after a year. Everybody mm-hmm. kept their jobs except, you know, the person I got that that I let go. Yeah. Um, those people, it was a private company, so those people that were on the state retirement system, they could keep staying in the state retirement system till they 
retire, and then they could come work for the private company. Uh, the university went from losing two million dollars a year to say a million dollars a year to profiting two point two million dollars a year. Wow! So yeah, wow. it's really like overcoming a three million. That's like a three million dollar overcoming. And then um, you know, did some other things with grants. Uh, they were you know letting people stay on grants too long, not applying for money on the grants in time. You know, spending money on things you couldn't spend money on. So you, you yeah. plug up those holes, you eliminate those practices, and now you're making money from the grants as opposed to losing money. This may uh, this may dovetail into a question I, I had as, as I was thinking about our, our time together. You know, we don't get many people who have the educational background that you have. Mm-hmm. What's your critique of, this may be a rabbit trail, but your critique of public school systems in the United States? Strengths, weaknesses, so, what we need to do to raise our game. So um, I, will t- I will tell you that um, seeing what, had, what happened in the school system while I was there showed me not only what things can go wrong, but what things can go very, very right. Um, mm. I would, you know, I, this, is a, this is one of those hard things that I have conversation with some of my friends about, and, and, and we get into some really stiff battles, but I've actually worked there. So one of the things I tell folk is there's probably enough money in public education. There's probably not enough money management. And so when we start managing funds better, we start finding out that there was a lot more that we could do and, 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 and much more toward. So my focus was to really become efficient and push as much money to the classroom as possible. All right. Yes. And then I made every yes. department that I had focus on doing their job so well that the kids benefited ultimately from everything they did. So you don't just go in and, and replace lighting. You improve lighting that that makes it more conducive for kids to learn. You don't just change out HVAC systems. You look at the, the temperature in the classroom and you ensure the kids are not in an uncomfortable environment so they can learn. So we did some yeah. really creative things. We got really, really efficient. And so my commentary on public education is I think public education is very useful uh, and necessary, but yeah. I think there needs to be greater accountability on the leaders in, that are over schools to make sure that they're doing everything in their power to cause learning to occur in classroom, and I don't think that that's happening by and large. I also think that the people in finance should have a greater responsibility of not just keeping up with you know, what's being spent and what comes in, but how efficiently things are done. So before I became CFO, I was budget director, so I could watch. Well, at one point, we purchased uh, science equipment for, this is my classic example, we purchased science equipment for, the, for all the high school classrooms, right? Great thing, you know. Yeah. Labs, you could have labs, you buy the big tables, you got the beakers, you got the, got the you know, all the, all the stuff you need. It's special equipment. Stuff costs me a fortune. All right? And I'm budget director, so I'm allocating money to it. Well, when I became, um, when I became CFO, 
one of the first requests that I got was, hey, we need science equipment at the high school. I said, whoa, no, you don't. I said, I just spent like $800,000. Now, this is 1998, so a long time ago. $800,000 probably wouldn't go very far (laughs) as it did back then. But anyway, no, you you don't need any more money. So the guy says, uh, or the person that tells me this, he said, you need to come out and look at what they purchased. So I go out to the schools, and what they actually did, they purchased equipment that was too big for the classroom. In some cases, you got three tables in the classroom. You have no room for anything else. No teacher desk. No. I mean, it was, it was oh, really, honestly, no. oh, Jim, no. it was tragic. So when I, when I was in a position where I could make things different, I ensured uh, that we purchased what was necessary and not anything excessive, that we made sure that if I bought middle school desks for students, that the students could actually fit in those desks. And, you know, people don't think about that, but, you know, don't buy elementary uh, desks for middle school kids. They cannot get in there. That's not going to work. And what will happen is, since you bought it, you're not going to be able to send that back. And so you end up right. junking it if you don't have a place uh, for it in, in elementary. Yeah. And so I'm telling you, when you start looking at waste that occurred, I, my goal was to not have situations where we had waste. Now, yeah. so my commentary is I believe that just about, I mean, I think there are few school district in the country, school districts in the country that you can go to that have a really good system in place of ensuring that waste doesn't occur. Another small example is buying computers. Everybody think buying a computer is great. Well, you, you can't buy the computers today and then start training the teachers on how to use the t- those computers in the classroom. Because by the time the teachers are, are ready to go, with maybe a year or so later, well now that computer has a four year life. And so, yeah. If you don't, and so I start pushing, train people before the technology gets there. It's a simple mm-hmm. kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it keeps you from wasting money. Yes, and and so there, there's just a lot of things that we could do that we don't do in education that I think could cause learning to occur. Uh, one more example. Um, so the I had I had you know really good superintendents. I would say up until. Up until the last one, all right. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give his name for fear to I besmirch his <laughs> reputation as much as I want yeah. to do it. But anyway, <laughs> but the the ones before required me to know what was happening in the classroom. They they had me in the meetings with principals, with edu- instructional deputies, and so I had to know what was going on. And so one of the times I decided to go out and visit the school principal said, hey, let me show you this classroom. We teach, this teacher, this teacher teaches every kid how to read uh, by January. And it was like January, right? I said, yeah. so it doesn't matter who's in the room, because you, you know, these classrooms are inclusive. You got exceptional ed students in the same class as regular kids. So she yeah. said, she'll, she'll pass the book around, every one of them will read. So it's like a kindergarten class. So I go in that wow. kindergarten class, and that teacher passes that book around, and you can't tell the special ed kids from the non-special ed kids. It was sure. it was great. 
So I said, fantastic. So every teacher does that. Every kindergarten teacher does the same thing. She said, no, just this one. I said, so the rest of them don't prepare their kids to read by January of, of their first year, of their kindergarten year? She said, well, you know, no, not really. I said, why not? I mean, why not duplicate this lady's success? She said, yeah. well, you know, the other teachers, they're a little bit more experienced. I said, who cares? I said, what you're telling me is if my child is unfortunate enough to be in their class, they're probably not, my child is probably not going to progress as well as if they're in this other teacher's class who gets her kids ready by January. And that was one of those stark kind of things that I don't think she had heard that question before. So that's yeah. the other thing. They don't duplicate successes well in public education, mm -hmm. and they need to. And it's possible. We got a superintendent in place, and he made sure that that happened, and it was one of the most uh, progressive time periods that we had. So I was, I'm able, I was able to see what happens when you have effective leadership and when you don't have effective leadership, yeah. which is why yeah. I am over, uh, I am just always excited about making good leaders. It's, it's yeah. the answer. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about today. So let's fast forward um, the systems group. Mm -hmm. So you pivot to the, the private sector. You, you <laughs> kind of told that story of how you made that jump. Yeah. What does tell us about the systems group, the, the group of companies, what you do for a living, right. how they interact. with All right. Each other. So so the first company that uh, Bill Cooley started, he started in 1977. He, he this guy has a great background, former military air force uh degrees, you know, doctorates. Uh, uh, he had a chance to work on Wall Street, and he decided that he mm -hmm. would not work on Wall Street, that he would be uh, a dean of college of business uh, at a university. So he did that. He retired in, as, before 77, and he started System Consultants Associates, and it was really about supporting small businesses. And over time, he's done that, and he morphed that into uh, putting together plans for, um, I think when Nissan came to Mississippi, he put together a proposal of how Nissan could select businesses, you know, to, to yes. provide services for them. And it was such a good plan that they asked him if he would take on one of those uh, suppliers for Nissan. Uh, and it was an opportunity that he knew absolutely nothing about. Um, he jumps in, he hires the right people, and that is Systems Electrocoding, uh, uh, built in 2001, started production in 2003, and we're in 20, 20 years of supplying Nissan and had the great experience of, of visiting the, the, the person who's over Nissan uh, Canton in Mississippi. And look, mm -hmm. saying, look, I, hey, it's a new guy. I said, look, I just want to sit down with you, talk to you about any problems that system electrocoding may be causing you headaches so I can work those things out. He said, well, look, he said, I wish every supplier was like systems electrocoding. You all are, you all are mm -hmm. top notch. He said, you can come sit down with me, but we won't have any problems to talk about. So wow. we do wow. a lot of things to make sure that we're, 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 we're meeting the customer's needs and um, – Doing the, doing the best job internally and efficiently in an efficient way to get there, and so, so, 
explain to our listeners what systems electrocoding does. So, yes, yeah, I yeah. know, but I don't yeah, think they'll so know. So systems electrocoding is a uh, we we basically do a painting process called electrocoding mm-hmm. where we rust proof metal parts. So I always tell people, if you remember those cars up north, get all that salt down at the bottom yes. and they start rusting out, the electrocoding mm-hmm. process prevents that from happening, basically. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we've been, we do that for Nissan, but we also do it for other suppliers as well. Um, our facility, I would say our facility is probably one of the best in the country, definitely in the mm-hmm. southeast. Um, you know, we've done business. We're currently doing parts from Mercedes, but actually for a company that that you know is a supplier to Mercedes, and they get us to e-coat those parts for for their EV battery covers. We do that, um, and we have other companies. We've done tools. We can electrocoat any metal part that you know, well. Yeah, any metal part, no, no aluminum at this point, but other metals. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we always tell folk, you know, we can we can do it any color as long as it's black. So it's a black <laughs> it's a black paint, but it's uh it's very effective in preventing corrosive. And so that was our and we're tier one in Nissan with that and and mm-hmm. achieving great success. You know what's amazing to me. If, if anyone questions the value of a big OEM going into a market like that, I think about what it looked like between Madison and Canton back in 2000 versus what it looks like today. All the shops yeah. and restaurants and new housing and the impact that that plant and the suppliers, that ripple effect that's just been unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's actually incredible. And I, I wish more people understood that impact unfortunately there's always this narrative out there of the bad capitalists right oh uh-huh. you got nissan to come in to get these tax incentives and blah 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 yeah. but the reality yeah. is nissan comes in they employ a ton of people these are really good jobs for mississippi very good high-paying jobs yes. teaching yeah. skills that probably never would have been taught in the state unless they came. Uh, And then the number of suppliers that have to be in Mississippi because they're supplying Nissan. And the model for Nissan and Toyota is a just-in-time kind of product. So they're not sitting around Mm -hmm. here trying to keep a bunch of inventory. So you got to have those suppliers relatively close uh, to supply them. And those suppliers are coming to Mississippi, employing more people, developing more skills. It's, it's, it's been an incredible boom for the economy of Mississippi. And I, I really feel like folks don't have the full story and they don't mm-hmm. know also how much uh, energy these companies put into being good community companies too and doing things in the community. They just, yeah. you know, yeah. they just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's um, let's talk about the other okay. uh, companies in your All group. right, so, so uh, when I came to the company in 2015, uh, Bill Cooley, who had started the electro-coding company in the consultancy, had turned the, do- his, the company over to his daughter, uh, Tony mm-hmm. Cooley, great boss. Uh, she's the owner and CEO of Systems Group. And so she had turned the consultancy and systems electrocoding over to Bill Cooley. Um, I'm sorry, Bill Cooley had turned that over to her 
um, you know, seven years before. So what had happened uh, for them was Toyota had looked at their success with Nissan and said, hey, mm-hmm. we'd like for you to do seat assembly for us, uh, for the Toyota Mississippi plant. And so Systems Automotive Interiors was created and founded mm-hmm. by Tony Cooley. And, um, and so we do the seat assembly for all the seats that are placed in Toyota Corollas for the entire country. So I tell people, if you're sitting in a Toyota Corolla that was built since 2011, you're sitting in seats that were made in our plant. And like you said, we're minority owned and we're woman owned and we do really, yeah. really great work and we're getting really, yeah. really good at what we do. And, yeah. uh, and so because of our success there, when Toyota and Mazda decided that they were gonna form a, a partnership in Huntsville, Alabama, they asked us to come over and do the seat assembly for both the Toyota vehicle, which is the Toyota Cross, uh, Toyota Corolla Cross, and also the Mazda vehicle, which is the Mazda CX-50. So mm-hmm. in Mississippi, if you look at the, the max production number, we're somewhere around 240. We can produce somewhere around 200, I'm sorry, 140,000 sets of seats per year for the Corolla at full production, 140, 145. Over in Huntsville, Alabama, we're, we're set with a production, max production at full production, 150,000 per vehicle. So hmm. much larger operation. Yeah. Um, I think we're at our max number here. We're right at 206 employees in, in, in Huntsville. Um, uh, 143 in Tupelo at our SAI. And, and our plant in, in Huntsville is called System Automotive Interiors, Alabama. So we just kind of mm-hmm. added Alabama to it. And then, so we have 143 at Tupelo and 83 in uh, at the electro coating. And then our consultancy, uh, we actually kind of staff up based on the projects that we have currently. In the consultancy, the ongoing contract that we have is we we have a contract to do supportive services for the Mississippi Department of Transportation. And so our responsibility there is to ensure that the MDOT meets their federal spend requirement for DBE participation on all those uh, federal dollars that go into roads. And so we've been yeah. doing that for the past 12, 13 years. And we're really good okay. at that too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand. Uh, you've got some interesting things cooking on the uh, consultancy. You might have an interesting <laughs> meeting, meeting later on this week. Yeah, we um, we were fortunate to apply for a capital readiness grant, and and everything that we've heard, particularly with this meeting that we've been asked to attend, says that we've gotten that grant. Uh, but basically, that grant, uh, the grant uh, that we apply for and looks like we're going to get is designed to take those same small businesses that we've been working with and some others and basically prepare them in such a way that they'll, they'll be able to get bonded or be able to get capital for their business operations. So helping small business, yeah. disadvantaged businesses to get uh, capital or be ready for any kind of capital opportunity if they make the request. 
And so there's a special meeting that the vice president is having associated with those capital readiness funds. That the vice president, Kamala Harris. Yeah, exactly. That vice president. Exactly. Wow. And so I called my wife and I said, hey, um, looks like I might get a chance to you know, be in a meeting with the vice president. She said, well, I'm going to give you this book. I want you to try to get her to sign her sign it. I said, well, I don't know if that's going to be possible, but, you know, give me the book anyway. I don't know if she's yeah. going to be doing book signing. Uh, so, wow. So anyway, yeah, it's, oh, that's a, pretty it's a pretty good opportunity. Um, she, uh, you know, wants to talk to us about how we're going to use those funds, and, and we have a really good plan for it. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, when you look at, just to promote your employee uh, employer brand a little bit, when, when you look at your most tenured employees, uh, you're a major employer. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think those tenured folks stick around with your company? Um, well, that was the other thing. When I was in the school system, we at, at different points we 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 grew in our understanding of what we needed to do to be be a better entity. And one of the things that we looked at was related to the top reason that people leave companies or organizations. And so at the time, they say, well, what's the top reason? What people think was money. You know, people leave, most people leave companies for money. The reality is that most people leave companies because they don't feel appreciated. And who are the people and the organizations that are vested with the responsibility of making people feel appreciated? Managers, supervisors, leaders. And so... When I came to systems, I carried, and, and even when I left, uh, while I was at Jackson Public Schools, when I went to Jackson State, and when I came to systems, I was focused on the same thing. Let's figure out who our customers are, and let's give them the best service possible, or products possible. But internally, let's treat our team, let's treat our team members, our employees, with dignity and respect. Let's make the workplace a place that where they know that they're gonna be treated well when they come into the organization. They're gonna work, we're gonna require everybody to do the job that they're tasked to do. But we're gonna treat them with dignity and respect. We're not gonna embarrass them, we're not gonna cuss them out. We're not gonna um, embarrass them in front of their peers. We're gonna coach them and help them get better. Um, But we're gonna create an organization that people actually wanna work for. Now. Everybody knows that I've been singing that song since I came into system companies. And I think they were singing it before, but I, you know, I just it's just one of those things that I focus on it and I start training managers to think that way too. I have a leadership yes. series that I carry every manager through is based on a book um, called Money Morning Leadership, you know, eight lessons that every manager should know. And in that, in that series, when I teach those classes to every manager in the organization, it's really about you're the person that is the chief reason that someone will leave or stay in our company. I said, so don't be the person that runs them off. Be the person that does everything in your power to keep them in place. Because it's, if they're a good worker, it's a whole lot harder to find another good one <laughs> yes, you know, yes. then you would believe. So don't let them walk out the door easy, and uh, yeah. easily. And that's yeah. that's kind of what I preach all the time. Yeah. Well, Michael, I feel like we could talk for for hours <laughs> here, but we're coming up on time. Um, how can folks find out more about 
your company? So what's the best so way? So we have uh, you know they you know they could call me. I, I put my number on our website, but our we, our oh, wow. the the umbrella company is System Companies. So if they look, if they go on the internet at www.systemscompanies.com, um, they will find all our companies there. And every company is basically set up a certain way. If you look at the acronym mm-hmm. for our name, SEC, Systems Electrocoding, it's sec-ms.com, SAI, okay. Systems Automotive Interiors, SAI-ms.com, if they want to just go there. But... If they want to get to all the companies, systems companies, www.systemscompanies.com. We'll put that in the show notes as well so people can get that easily. Well, Michael, thank you so much. You're doing great work over there. What an interesting career you've had. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's nice to connect this way. We appreciate it. It's been you. fun, Jim. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the invitation. Okay. Thank you. All right. Until next time, keep it real. Thank you for listening. This podcast was powered by Onan, a family of staffing companies providing real staffing solutions to manufacturing, logistics, and food processing companies across the United States of America. To get in touch or learn more about partnering with an Onan Group company, visit us at www.onangroup.com. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.